It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So what has the founder of the state of Pennsylvania got to do with a large group of schoolchildren armed with sticks and a small church nestling in the shadow of the Tower of London? It's Friday, March the 15th, 2013. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe and this is Londonist Out Loud. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London. Okay, you know where you are. A radical transformation. Very radical transformation. Morally outraged with what's going on. I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square would have a gallery. Place called the Kittle Hoosie. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. The hell is that? <laughs> the man is tired of London. He's tired of so London. So what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed Woolworths. It's, it's very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You sneak through the city, what, immersing yourself in the sight sounds. And for the Jewish community who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing. When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris... He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced it is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing. People frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. No, it'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. That's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? Well, hello, hello. Here we are in a bit of London that I've never been to before. We are in Tower Place. Tower Place is a piazza. Across to my right, I can see the Tower of London, the White Tower there with its uh, four towers behind me. Well, quite an interesting arrangement going on here. There are two large mirror-windowed office buildings, and between them is suspended a kind of a glass canopy structure, which looks like a third building, but it's got no ground floor, so you can see through it and you can walk under it. But it feels as though you're indoors. Very peculiar. To my far left, we've got the walkie-talkie in the last stages of construction there. Several cranes gleaming against a blue sky. And then uh, in front of me, I can see one of the oldest structures in London. It's Mike Patterson of London Historians. Oh, and no, it's a church. Hi, Mike. Thanks very much, and good morning to you. <laughs> um, we're here to, uh, to look at what claims to be the oldest church in London today. That's correct. We're at uh, All Hallows by the Tower. Um, this is only my second visit to this church, um, so I'm learning it as well, learning it with you. And it is a very ancient church. I mean, London, as we know, is full of ancient churches, but they don't get more ancient than this one, which is first founded in about 675 AD, I believe, in the Saxon period. 
And because it is so old, looking at it from the outside, you can see that it's a mixture of styles. So we have this tower, which by no means the, the newest bit, but it was built in the 17th century. Inside, when we go there shortly, we'll see the earliest bit from the, from the 7th century. This church itself was blitzed heavily by the Luftwaffe, so it was restored, took about 16 years after the war to restore it, so there's what we call modern uh, 20th century Gothic, which you can see from from the inside. Um, And then the outer walls, I I suppose um, the parts of the church that were longest surviving and, and... probably best known up until the war but they, they have been restored nicely are, um, are 15th century so you've got four distinct periods represented in this church and looking at it from the outside you know you can you can clearly see that and that's that's a that's a common characteristic of very old churches whether they're here in London or, or in Rome or anywhere like that. Well, now, as soon as you mentioned that it got bombed, of course, when you look around uh, parts of the East End, parts of the city, uh, certainly up to St Paul's, it's notable for having a lot of big modern office buildings. And that is in part, of course, because the area was cleared for us by our friendly European neighbours. Very much so. And um, that's another thing which has quickly made this church one of my favourites, is that we have the tower over there, which is full of tourists uh, nothing wrong with tourists of course but you know it's very busy and expensive quite frankly and that sort of thing we're next to this very busy street here and we've got all these office buildings and yet here at all hallows it's very peaceful and it's a very nice place to come particularly if you go inside it as we'll see shortly Yes, we might not be conveying the peacefulness. It is bounded on one side by a main road. And the reason we're on this side of the building to start off with is partly because I was fascinated by this clock that's coming out of the side of the tower of the building there. Unlike many clocks in London, it seems to be telling precisely the right time, which is great because there are so many streets. I'm I'm thinking particularly of Bishopsgate. You go down Bishopsgate, there are a a half a dozen uh, public clocks, all of them telling different times. No idea where you are. I've always felt that there should be a bylaw of some sort that uh, public clocks need to be telling the correct time, and that's something that the owners of the building have to do, otherwise they'll get a fine or something like that. Yes, it, it does seem to be out there with uh, not letting uh, trees grow into the sidewalk and you know, just basic civil uh, civic stuff. That sort of thing. And this, this is a, a classic um, church tower clock, very much like the lovely clock at St Magnus Martyr down the road. And this tower is quite interesting, actually, because it's the only church structure that was built during the Commonwealth, in other words, Cromwell's governmental period. So uh, this tower was built, I think, in, we're talking about 1658, something like that. And the reason it was built was uh, some years before, not long before, there was gunpowder here in the churchyard, and there was an accident, massive explosion, down came the tower, um, and uh, this got built. And as I say, the only church structure built uh, during the Commonwealth period. And some short time later, it was where Samuel Pepys was viewing the, the, the fire of London from, this very tower, which then would have been very new. It would have only been about eight years old. No, six years old, when Pepys was on top of it viewing the tower. Uh, the fire, rather. And the reason this church survived the fire was that... Um, there were fire breaks built all around it. I suppose the proximity to the tower, which also had fire breaks built all around it. And therefore, this is one of the very few churches in London which um, survived uh, the Great Fire of London. Well, look, let's move around the building. It is a windy day, as you can hear, so apologies for a bit of a gust in the microphone there. We're heading down on the south side of the 
church now. It'd be a beautiful day to have a look at the uh, the tower there in front of us. That's right. Uh, th- there's an interesting relationship between the tower and All Hallows by the tower because um, there's some very interesting things uh, historically. For example, martyrs you would call martyrs who got their heads chopped off at the tower. Their bodies, presumably their heads as well, were first brought to All Hallows for burial. So Sir Thomas More, for example, um, Bishop uh, John Fisher, um, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury... Um, Loud. Loud. Yep. Uh, yeah, their headless bodies were brought here after execution in the tower. And um, one wonders whether there's a certain sort of tension between the tower and All Hallows by the tower for those reasons. I mean, certainly there have been boundary disputes um, between the Tower of London and this particular parish. So um, you probably know that the, a, a sort of common tradition in the city is, is the beating of the bounds, whereby youth or, or school children once a year go to where the parish boundary markers are and, and, and whack them with sticks to say, you know, this is our territory type of thing. Um, and there's been a bit of a dispute, apparently, over the years between the tower and All Hallows by the tower, where the actual, actual boundary markers uh, lie. And those boundaries, incidentally, any, any of the parishes by the river extend into the River Thames. They actually go out in a boat to beat the bounds, uh, include, including this parish here. How far into the river does the boundary extend? Well, about the middle, I suppose. The, they're, they're saying this is our bit, and then presumably Southwark or Surrey on the other side. This, you know, this is this is our bit. Oh, so there's so not a there's the not middle. a path up the river, the centre of the river that's not owned by anyone or anything like that. Not as such. I'm not sure exactly how that's decided. But uh, this church is actually associated also with the uh, Waterman and Lightman traditionally as well. So the Waterman will take the bound beaters out in the boat to the middle of the river for that particular purpose. Okay. Well, we're out of Tower Place now, and I guess we're on a sort of a veranda I presume owned at least governed by the church and uh, again what a beautiful way to see the tower you really get the sense of the formidable strength that that place represents and uh, there's tower bridge over there in the background beautiful hazy sunshine there lifting off the river yeah this is the uh, end of the church where if you're inside it is where the, where the main altar is um, and it's got a lovely big plain window it hasn't got stained glass in it and above that window there is an emblem of an old fashioned type oil lamp which is the emblem of the Tok H, I think it's called the Tok H Society or Organization. Yes, now I've heard about these guys. What, what, what is it? Oh, I think it's just, it's, it's a Christian, it's a sort of Christian movement that uh, involves friendship and that sort of thing. And, and it's, it became a global movement. Um, but the history of the Tok H movement starts inside this church. And when we get inside, we'll talk about a man called Tubby Clayton who founded it all. He's a very interesting character. I can see looking at this wall that there are at least three different styles of brickwork going on there. uh, Literally and metaphorically, this place really has been through the wars, hasn't it? Blown up, bombed. Yes. How is it it still standing? Yes, it's funny. uh, One of the few churches to survive the Great Fire of London, nonetheless, um, has been, you know, met with bad fortune at other times with the accidental powder explosion and then heavily blitzed by the Luftwaffe. Yeah, we've got brickwork and stonework and you can see the history layer on layer from this side of the church, in fact. Well, let's go in. (laughs) 
Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, tweet at Londonist Sound, and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. Well, we're passing up into the church now under a sort of a lean-to that looks like yet another style of architecture. Well, here we are. We're inside the main body of the building now. We've entered via a side door. And, well, the first thing that's noticeable to my eyes as we look around, um, around about 8 to 10 feet in the air, are a lot of model ships. And, uh, well, they're everywhere, actually. As soon as I look around, there are some suspended from the ceiling, a few uh, up there on the walls, many sailed sailing ships, uh, what looks like a tea clipper there in front of us. And I've no doubt these would be uh, about associations with the watermen and lightermen and perhaps other marine institutions. Um, Straight across from us, I can see in repose a carved image of uh, somebody who, to my mind, appears to be in quite modern dress is uh, lying there and it says they shall grow not old as we that are left grow old age shall not weary them nor the years condemn they're memorials essentially uh, the one that right in front of us is on the south side the south aisle i suppose you would call it um is uh, simply a first world war memorial to those who gave their lives in the first world war the one the reflection of it on the other side is also a 20th century one and that is uh, the memorial of uh, Philip Tubby Clayton who we mentioned is the founder of the Toc H movement Um, he was the vicar here for believe it or not 40 years between 1922 and 1962 so he was a vicar here when this place got flattened in the Blitz um, and it took 16 odd years before you know to restore it rebuild it I think it was opened by the Queen Mother in 1957, fully restored. Tubby was still the vicar at that time. And it's a rather lovely uh, monument. He's lying at peace. At his feet, you've got his... I guess it must be his pet, because it's a little like... It looks like a Yorkshire Terrier. It's very cute. So traditionally in these sorts of monuments, you have knights, and they've got like a dragon or a lion or... A, a very fierce-looking dog or something uh, under their feet, and Tubby Tubby has his uh, his little terrier under his feet. But he was a chaplain in uh, the army in the First World War in Belgium, and uh, what he did was uh, for the troops behind the lines. He opened like a sort of cafe library called, and it was called Talbot House, and uh, the soldiers could go there and read books and such like that. But what Tubby was, he was clever to prevent the soldiers from stealing books. They used to have to give their cap or their beret or their hat as collateral against the book. So they would read their library book and then return it before they left the building and have tea and coffee. And there was sort of friendship and, there was, and, and he being a padre, it was a very Christian type of thing. It was called Talbot House and I think the call sign became Toc H. That was the call sign of it when people were referring to it as a location uh, because it was during the war. Then after the First World War, he used that model of the the library and the uh, and the the tea cafe, to, you know, the, the the sort of cafe type of thing, to to start this uh, Toc H movement, which was a Christian friendship movement, which quickly spread throughout the world, and and is still going to this day, as I understand. And their symbol is the Toc H lamp, 
with the little flame, little cross coming out of it. And uh, I think probably maybe older listeners will remember. I mean, I remember my parents calling someone as, as thick as a Tokage lamp, or sorry, as dim as a Tokage lamp, as a <laughs> you know, as, as saying someone's a bit thick. So I don't know. Tokage lamps must have been quite quite uh, dim, I suppose. But uh, that's the story of Tubby Clayton and the Tokage movement begun on, on the battlefields of Belgium and then, uh, and then here at All Hallows by the Tower. Let's move further into the building. And uh, I suppose it's worth mentioning what isn't under our feet right now. A lot of the churches in the area, and uh, well, Southwark Cathedral in particular, just across the way there, um, you can't uh, walk along without walking on gravestones and flagstones commemorating people's lives here it's a rather boring <laughs> rather boring floor like they couldn't be bothered with that part of it i think that's right i i, I think the place simply got that badly damaged uh during the war and the blitz that um there was there was nothing actually to restore in terms of this i mean we have a very interesting crypt underneath where we're standing which we can talk about shortly but um no it's just a parquet floor a bit like i suppose uh, saint bride i don't know if you've been there and the crypt there that was also if you look at old uh, photographs of uh, the war saint bride's and similar to here you can see the whole thing is opened out by by bomb damage and i guess that's why they don't have that traditional church type of floor anymore um, but incidentally if you look over there the the two the the surviving outer walls, which were, uh, that one actually didn't fall over. The one nearest us did and was rebuilt. But you notice that one is black. And that was because that was an incendiary bomb. It was closest to that side, which is unlike this side. So, um, so that's the difference there. But uh, it's, 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 it's wearing its trauma in how black it is on that side. And where can we see the original part of the building, the, the surviving part from 675? Oh, this way, right at the back. Let's just take a stroll. This is the, uh, it's an arch, um, and it's a survival from the original uh, church of 675 AD. And you can see that it's a early Saxon church type architecture. And there it is, quite modest, uh, stone, very, very basic, very primitive in a way, but also very solid looking. Yes, it certainly stood the, the test of time. As you say, very unremarkable, but the, uh, the oldest surviving part, and it's just here on the, uh, the entrance to the Crypt Museum. Now, I, I gather the Crypt Museum also has a, a bit of Roman history in it. That's right. A lot of the Roman stuff was, uh, was actually discovered. Again, you know, um, uh, every cloud is a silver lining. It was after the blitz when they were restoring this place that a lot of the roman bits and pieces were found and um they're mainly floor tiles and that sort of thing but that tells us that there were um people living on this site for 2000 years so even though the church is old as we say 1400 1300 odd years there have been people on this site for over two millennia and do we know what was going on on this site? Uh, was it purely domestic, or were, were there other things happening in and around this area in uh, Roman Londinium? Oh, very much so, yeah. I'm, I'm not too sure exactly what uh, the, this building represented, the tiles in this particular building, whether it was domestic or, or whatever it happened to be, but certainly this was right, right, right in the middle of, uh, of Roman London, where there are fines... Uh, there are fines all over the place. I mean, just down the road from us, we have the uh, the Roman bathhouse. Uh, it's just a matter of a couple of hundred yards down the road here. So very much part of Roman London, yes. To my right, if I look through, actually, the 
the old arch here, the Saxon arch, I can see yet another uh, ocean-going vehicle, and this one is... Uh, it, it looks like it's got two big uh, steam funnels on the top there, maybe early 20th century, something like that, whether it's uh, for for leisure or work or uh, naval usage, I don't know. But w- what's with all the boats here, Mike? Um, well, this church is very much associated with uh, not only um, the merchant navy and merchant shipping, but uh, also fishermen uh, as well. And if you look just across this busy road that we've just, I think it's called Byward Road or Byward Street, the very busy road that we were talking about just now, you've got the memorial for um, the merchant and fisherman who lost their lives in the Second World War um, in Trinity Place. And this church here on, on the uh, aisle that we've just been to, where all the old ships are hanging uh, about 10 feet up, we have uh, the Merchant Seamen's Chapel or something like that. But it's a chapel for, for the merchant seamen who've lost their lives at sea. And over there, there's also a memorial book for them. And uh, there's a uh, ship's bell um, down there, bar ship's bell. It's actually from a, from a ship which was lost quite recently in the 1990s, I think. So it's still, this church still does that function of remembering sailors who, who lose their lives. Now, this is very interesting aspects of the churches in London. I, I don't know whether churches elsewhere do the same thing in other cities, but a lot of the churches in town have an association with a particular trade or profession. Uh, for there's the RAF church down on the Strand, I want to say. Yes, no. it is on the Strand. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to remember which one it is there. Or Aldwych, yeah, where it opens out into Aldwych. That's right, yeah. yeah. Is it St. Dunstan's, possibly? I want to say that, yes. And uh, that's how well I know. But various others uh, as well have those associations. But but why? Why do they find themselves linking arms with a particular trade? I, I think we're much more secular than we were in, in previous times. And whether, whether it's an army regiment or an air force or a trade or profession, um, People were more pious, I think, in past times than they are today. And they would look for an association with a particular church. Particular churches would look for an association with outside bodies because everything costs money and needs funding. So there's a symbiotic relationship that a church can supply certain communities or institutions with their spiritual requirements, and they in turn might be quite wealthy, and they can endow the church. And so I think that's how it's worked out over time. And I think, in a way, the city churches are quite fortunate because, you know, a lot of churches these days uh, have difficulty with their finances. And the city churches, because we have all the livery companies and, and that sort of thing, some of them are quite wealthy, they, they help uh, churches somewhat, where churches outside of the city might not have that, um, that luck, I suppose you might call it. Just to join the dots here, uh, when we talk about the Waterman and the Lighterman, we, that is one of the livery companies. And um, to, to connect previous episodes, we met Murray Craig, who hands out the freedom of the City of London. He gave us a good uh, amount of information on the various livery companies and, and what those livery companies do today. So, for example, the, the Honourable, or is it Worshipful, company of, uh, of fan makers are now essentially a sort of a, a, a trade body for people using modern fan equipment, that is air conditioning, for example. The Waterman and Lighterman, you may remember an episode or oh, a couple of years ago now where we were dragging big barges full of trash along the Thames and uh, the, the guys there are connected with the company of Waterman and Lighterman and so to this church. 
I recall also uh, on quite a recent um, episode that we did, we watched the uh, was it the Doggett Coat and Badge race uh-huh. from just down the river from here, which is a, an old tradition going back hundreds of years. They say the oldest uh, team sporting event in the world, which is also a waterman thing, where the uh, recently qualified apprentices race each other. Well, that's interesting. So they've got the the oldest church and the oldest sporting event. That's right. Yeah, all around here. Yeah. Let's go down and have a look at the crypt. Before we go to the crypt, I've got to show you probably this church's greatest treasure, which is this carving by Grinling Gibbons, who was probably the greatest woodcarver ever in history. Certainly the greatest woodcarver this country's ever produced. Um, And he made this uh, baptistry font cover, which uh, comprises, looks like three sort of cherubs, and it's got like a dove at the top and uh, in the middle it's got much fruit and leaves and pine cones and bits of wheat and that sort of thing and uh, not only is he the greatest woodcarver this country's ever had this is considered to be one of his greatest works this alone is worth a visit to this church apart from everything else that we've spoken about so it's, 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 quite, uh, it's quite awesome as they say the detail here is absolutely incredible. The petals on what look to be uh, sort of cabbage roses, maybe, uh, are incredibly delicate. The leaves finely wrought. We've got some wheat and so forth there. There's a sort of a suggestion of a abundance and uh, a kind of a harvest time feeling there. Berries and so forth. Really beautiful piece of work. Yeah, the leaves, the leaves are just like leaves. Uh, I think it's carved out of uh, lime wood, as I understand it. Um, Grinley Gibbons, um, he was sort of like talent spotted uh, by John Evelyn, uh, the diarist. He was working um, in a shipyard. You know, in those days, ships were more fancy than they are. There are a lot of wood carving in the back and on the prow and all that sort of thing. And uh, Grinling Gibbons was working in one of these shipyards and he was spotted by John Evelyn, um, who then introduced him to Christopher Wren. And therefore, Grinling Gibbons did a lot of the carving inside St. Paul's, in the, I think in the choir mainly. Um, and you'll see a lot of his work in churches around London. But this, this piece in particular is, is, is rather fine. And where does this church have this object so i think it was donated by uh, probably quite a wealthy parishioner um who paid 12 pounds for it which i suppose was a lot of money in those days but uh, imagine now the font upon which the font cover sits has quite the history as well they've seen at least two versions the more recent one carved by i think a sicilian prisoner of war and uh, that was in memory of the tunnelers of the Royal Engineers but the, uh, the, the font that preceded it, that has history around it too uh, That's right, uh, it was the font that would have been used at the baptism of William Penn who was the chap who founded Pennsylvania uh, who was baptised here and educated here and uh, there's another family connection in, in so far as father Admiral Penn uh, was a chap who made the fire breaks which saved this church uh, from being burned in the, in the Great Fire of London. So the Penn family very much associated with this church before they went over to uh, the colonies and uh, to found Pennsylvania and all that came after that. And so, so further seafaring connections as well then, the long journey across the Atlantic and uh, naval career. 
very much so. Yeah, and, and the, 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 you know the, the whole the whole nautical theme because we, we have we have the pens that we just spoke to. We have the business of peeps being on top of the tower, and he was, of course, worked for the Admiralty. Mm-hmm. He was in charge of the Admiralty, um, and so and, and then the watermen, the lightermen, and the, yeah, the, the nautical and, uh, and seafaring and riverfaring uh, connotations of the church. They just go on and on. Well, let's go below decks to the crypt. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on a 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet or desktop, or burnt to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. As we head down, I see we're passing uh, a model of a ship that's been constructed in memory of Basil, the first Baron Sanderson. And uh, that seems to be, in a way, that's the way that people are remembered here rather than the uh, the big uh, six-by-three flagstones. uh, Instead, a ship for each person of significance. We've headed down a tight flight of stairs done a sharp left and here we're looking at what is clearly Roman work it's terracotta tiling very fine tiling I guess each one's um, well it's, it's less than an inch square and seems to come in waves and I guess that's the effect of time rather than design I think so. I mean, the Romans, they must have had so much time on their hands because they made things out of such small, tiny uh, bits, you know, these, like, floor... T- this is this is a pavement, and, and they haven't used paving stones. And if you look at also Roman brickwork, I suppose it's the technology of the time. That's, that's what they were able to make, things in that size. Um, but nonetheless, this is a pavement, and it, uh, it looks like a mosaic. Uh, an undesigned mosaic but uh, tiny pieces must have taken ages but as we know Romans made things to last so I guess they knew what they were doing and this is the floor of a domestic house and uh, part of that rippling effect is a gully which may well have something to do with uh, where the the walls were it's interesting to think isn't it that even uh, though we know that the layout of London has changed since Roman times and the, the sort of the centres of entertainment or trade or whatever have, have moved around in this area that we identify as London uh, you don't necessarily think of the idea of the, the level of the land rising and falling but clearly it has that's right um, so much of London existed you know 12 to 20 feet below the current uh, you know the current pavement level street level and um, and I've never I don't know the answer to this I just wonder where where does all that stuff come from where does all that soil millions it must be millions and millions of tons of soil that's raised the level um, and it's not only London you get this in all big cities I don't know where all that other stuff comes from we're into the crypt museum now very atmospheric indeed lovely terracotta walls and illuminated display cases here we have on the wall tombstones and uh, these are casts of tombstones Uh, the one to my right was found in Dudman's Fields in 1787 the Latin inscription reads in memory of Flavius Agricola soldier of the 6th legion the victorious he lived 42 years 10 days Albua Faustina set this up to her incomparable husband 
And we've got another one here, and uh, this is from this was found in 1852. It doesn't give us a, a date again, uh, but it tells us about Alice Aphidius Alusa of the Pomptine tribe, a native of Atiena. He lived 70 years. 70 years. His heirs erected this in accordance with his will. He lies here. I've got to say some of the, the words being used there are, are really alien. I mean, I've no idea what the, the Pomptine tribe or where Atiena is. Uh, I have to presume that... Um, Either these were places in uh, what, what is now the UK that have been since renamed and are hidden behind a change of name, or else this was somebody who travelled a long way to, to come and find himself here and eventually die um, here. Well, well, I think London in Roman times is the same as London today and is the same as London has always been, uh, just a complete mix of peoples. So you, you would have a small number of uh, people actually from Rome who were doing jobs running the place and that sort of thing. Um, and then you would have had uh, people from Spain and, you know, all over, all over the Roman Empire, really. Um, uh, and, and not forgetting, of course, the slaves, um, who would have been, again, from all over. Um, and so a lot of these place names that are described could be anywhere from, uh, from Scotland to Syria to Africa, anywhere like that. Um, and here in the museum, and don't we all love a, a nice model? They've got a model here of uh, Roman London. They've got similar ones in the Museum of London, of course, which shows the ancient Roman walls, the fort up there in the corner, the forum. Well, this is, this is about as exciting as it gets. This is uh, an eagle-eye view over Londinium. That's it. And you've got uh, the Fleet River over there to the west, um, which is the you know the same as the fleet that we knew, knew through history, which then eventually got covered and is now the the Farringdon Road. So if I'm able to place myself about here, and by the way, we'll put a photograph of this on to um, the usual channels. Have a look on uh, Tumblr or on uh, Londonist Sound for links to the pictures. Um, if we if we have a look here, the Fleet River is heading up, and that is far to the the west of the wall so the, the the london wall finishes then there's a bit of grassland and then there's the fleet river and there's nothing to the west of that uh, except for one little house <laughs> i don't know what they're doing they, they built it in the wrong place clearly um but if if i've got my uh, geography right then that little bridge crossing over the fleet river there that would be uh, just about where you go across into fleet street having come down holborn hill i would say so very much so um, and here in the city itself, in this old model, uh, we have the, the only river that actually comes through is the Walbrook, uh, which again is, um, is underneath the pavements nowadays. Um, what's missing from this model is, because it's quite an old model as we can see, is the amphitheatre, ah. which was discovered, as we know, under the Guildhall. Um, and it's not on this model because they didn't know it existed, but now we do. So it would be a different model if we made it today. And London Bridge, I've got to say, looking rather more fragile than any of the, the later versions of it. Uh, just a very straightforward, probably wooden construction. I should think so, yeah. Guesswork, really. Um, I mean, there, is a, there, there are bits of wood knocking around which they uh, think were old Roman piles of could be bridges, could be jetties. No one really knows, but um, so very much guesswork. Top left, we can see a large walled encampment that seems to be separate from the rest of Londinium. Uh, so that's a, about as, as far north as the, uh, this reconstruction takes us. What, what is that? Um, well, that's, uh, I think that's where the main army uh, would have been in that little walled area, which is now, um, that's where the Barbican today was. That's where the Barbican gets its name from, from that little bit. 
as you can see. If you, if you do a walking tour with the City of London guides or something like that around the Barbican area, there are, there are some bits of that Roman wall that they will show you. And it's, it's up at that bit there. Plenty of Roman artefacts down here. Also some lovely pieces of uh, silver uh, gilt ornamentation going on here. And Archbishop William Lord silver medal. Should we say something about uh, Archbishop Lord? Um, Loud, I should say. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he was the main one of the main allies of Charles the First. Um, and during the Civil War, he got tried and executed by the Parliamentarians in I think 1645, um, in the middle of the English Civil War, um, and his body was brought here and buried here for a while, uh, about 20 years or so, and then it was carted off and reburied in Oxford, I think St. John's College. I'm not sure if that was his college. But uh, he was Charles I's main ally on religious matters, and they were trying to force this royal and religious orthodoxy, and uh, I think he was kind of sacrificed by Charles... Oh, well, as we come around here, we've got a, uh, what looks to be possibly a replica of the lists of burials in this parish and um, it relates to the year 1644 through 45 right at the top there we have uh, William Loud stroke Lord Archbishop of Canterbury beheaded it says beheaded yes just the facts well we've moved to the end of this vault and we've discovered what looks to be a an altar with a sort of a private audience chamber here. It looks almost as though it's been designed to to be uh, protected by the, the structure of the building, or even as though it's a sort of a, a secret place of worship. And it's got very strong associations with uh, the Crusades in the Far East, um, because the stones of that altar um, were brought back or sent back rather I would say uh, by Richard I when he was on the third crusade in the 1180s I think it was 1187 third crusade anyway he sent those uh, bits of stones back from the from the crusader lands um, at that time and now it forms the altar of this church this church is also associated with the Knights Templar who were also crusaders as we know and when their, um, when their movement was suppressed uh, in the early 14th century, I think it was, and, and uh, disbanded, some of the English uh, leading Templar Knights were, had their tri- trials, I believe, in this church. Um, so, so this church also has very strong um, associations with the Crusades movement as well, um, and epitomized by that. Uh, altar and the stones that it's made from. And it looks as though this still is available for active worship and, and paying respects. I think this might be our final exhibit on the trail. Not that this is the final exhibit available, uh, but we are constrained by time, unfortunately. Uh, we are looking at a barrel. We're looking at a barrel, and again, once again, the Nautical Association. This is the crow's nest from Ernest Shackleton's ship on his uh, last Antarctic expedition. And it's a barrel, and it's got some bits of poles stuck to it and a bit of rope. And you can imagine being, you know, up there, sort of 40, 60, 80 feet up in the air, 
um, standing in this barrel. It must have been really scary, not to mention cold. This is about as inhospitable a workplace as you could possibly wish to inhabit. Absolutely, yeah. And and this is this is what I love about this particular crypt. I mean, who doesn't love a crypt? But this crypt museum is so full of eclectic bits and pieces, like this um, crow's nest barrel and the bits of silverware from the church and the parish records with the pens in it and John Quincy Adams's uh, marriage uh, being recorded there and all that sort of stuff. So it's fantastic and it's free to visit here. Well, Mike, thanks for bringing us uh, to this wonderful building and uh, taking us through some of its history and bringing us down to the the crypt. I I certainly didn't think I'd end up looking at part of the Shackleton exhibition today. Tell us about London Historians. I know you've had uh, a huge surge of of membership recently, and long may that continue. Lots of members now doing all sorts of exciting things around town on a regular basis. Yes, um, lots of members. We continue to grow. Things are going very nicely for us. I'm in the middle of organising all sorts of uh, events um, some are on our website, some will be going on the website in the next week or two. Um, we're going to be doing a lot of uh, exciting things in the summer, hoping for good weather. We'll be hope to do some things on the canal, Regent's Canal, all sorts of history things and behind the scenes and, and that sort of thing. Lots of talks I gather by eminent Londoners who uh, will take the, the members round. I think it's a, sort of a first come first serve ticketing thing isn't it for members but they'll get insights into uh, well in fact some of the places we've been to. Well exactly I mean we're doing a behind the scenes at the Old Bailey we're doing a behind the scenes at the government art collection. Those things are completely now full up and so the more members we get the more events I need to lay on in order to satisfy the members uh, demand for the, for these things so, so it's it's all to the good and uh, going in the right direction, yeah. So if you come, he will build it. That's the that's the message. Um, where can people find out more about London Historians? Which, by the way, has the Tower of London as its logo, I think. That's right, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it worked out okay. When, I, when when we first started, what to do? It had to be the, had to be the Tower of London, really. Um, but if you go to uh, LondonHistorians.org, that's our website, uh, everything from there, our events, uh, our blog, anything that we do, you can find out from there. And I also, uh, I should mention, uh, since they've been, uh, you know, allowed us to um, walk around their fantastic uh, church, um, I think it's all hallowsbythetower.org.uk. Check that out as well, because um, this church actually is open uh, seven days a week, but do check on the visiting hours, and it's free. Well worth it. All right, well, Mike Patterson for today. Thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guest, Mike Patterson. Thanks, too, to Bernie Barkley and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I'm N. Quentin Wolf. Inch by inch, waiting for the river's cave. Straining for the blueing waves calling from the shore. i
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details